welcome to King of the Ride podcast. I am your host. I am Ted King. I am very excited about this one. Heck, I'm excited about all of the guests on this show. But today is timely. It is a special one. Our guest is Corinne Rivera, someone whose name I have known for pretty much forever in my time in the sport of cycling. Coincidentally, we were both getting into the sport at roughly the same time, but her trajectory has been meteoric through the ranks. She has tallied 72 national championships, one world title, and the highest I've been on a nationals podium is third. Not only that about Corinne, she has recently been announced to the Tokyo 2021, or maybe 2020, I forget what they're calling it. She is an Olympian. What an honor. What an amazing title, Olympian. Anywhere you go in the world, it's known that she is among the very best of the best. Deservedly so. I'm excited to see how she does in Tokyo in her first Olympic Games. So I caught up with Corinne while she was getting a little bit of altitude training ahead of this week's U.S. National Championships. I'm excited to watch that as well. Meanwhile, I'm fresh off fourth place at Unbound. That result comes less than five weeks after I broke my collarbone. Now, look, I'm the first to admit that I am pumped with this result as a result of the previous same month and a half of preparation. I'm making some videos now, so so please check out my YouTube channel, Punch in Something Like Ted King Cycling in YouTube, if you're interested in seeing how I've been able to bounce back from a relatively common injury in the sport. I have gotten my feet back under me since the since the race, since that little 206-mile outing. <sighs> I've been out on a few rides. We just wrapped up an event here in Vermont called the Ranger, which was so familial. I saw so many kids. I saw so many people of all generations, all ages. What a really cool event, the Ranger. Check that one out. Anyway, it's fun to be back out at events. It's fun to feel so so normal. Yeah, there were plenty of COVID protocols at, at each of these events that I've been to since then, but it's really nice to just feel, feel like we're back at it and banging around on bikes amongst friends. Anyway, I wish Corinne nothing but success in this week's Nationals and, of course, the Olympics this summer. I'm not going to wax on any further without more delay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Corinne Rivera. Thank you for taking the time. Um, we sure. can see how this how this rolls. I on one other occasion over the course of the previous, I want to say seventy five podcasts, have I done a series of twenty questions, and I'm excited to bring out round two of twenty questions with Corinne Rivera. I, I hope this goes smoothly. So, cool. jumping right into things, let's jump into number one. You are a seventy two time national champion in nearly all disciplines of cycling. I think we don't yet have UCI trials riding in there, but you do have <laughs> road, track, cyclocross, and mountain bike. The question yep. number one, how well can you name all of those 72 titles? Well, how long do you want this podcast to be? <laughs> <laughs> Could you name all 72? I mean, I know that my first, my first two were from 2004, 
um, 10 to 12 junior nationals in Park City, Utah. I think mm-hmm. I won the time trial. Time trial and the and the crit. Mm-hmm. I think I lost the road race and I was fired up to win the crit. <laughs> uh, and then the next year I won the time trial and the road race and didn't win the crit. And then I think when I was 14, then I won all three. Okay. And then and then from there it was like just <laughs> mowing them down, mm-hmm. crushing them. Yeah. Uh, doubled doubled the count with collegiate. I think if it wasn't for collegiate, I think when I finished juniors, it was 32 championships. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, collegiate just pretty much doubled that. Uh-huh. I think uh, to 70, and then I had. <laughs> Uh, no, our six, maybe 68, 69. And right. then I won a U23 crit nationals and also us pro crit nationals. And then also us road nationals once. So I can't name every single one. Otherwise right, right, I think right. we're going to be sitting here for a long time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, but I can, I can outline some, some key ones. Also my last collegiate one was a, a mountain bike short track. So I thought that was pretty cool too. So that's super um, cool. Very well rounded. Needless to say, you've yeah. got you've got you've got a lot of talent on the old bicycle. Um, and I really wanted to do BMX too, uh-huh. but uh, I think uh, I was racing for UHC at the time, and I think that probably wouldn't be a good idea. Ah, uh, yeah. Isn't it <laughs> crazy totally right now? It. Like looking at like the Tom Pidcocks and the Vanderpols, who obviously are extraordinarily talented and there are you know it happens both on on a bit on the men's side and the women's side just how diversified the talent pool is um i remember i mean i literally had it in my contract when i raced for liquid gas that we weren't allowed to mountain bike we weren't allowed to ski we weren't allowed to do all these things that were quote mm-hmm. or other dangerous activities and yeah that's just that's another that's a detour yeah, entirely right. <laughs> um, okay, so staying on topic of national championships, you are the 2018 U.S. Road Race National Champion, which mm-hmm. is a title that I believe you earned in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then later this Correct. month is the U.S. National Championships again here in Knoxville, Tennessee. So mm-hmm. the question is, where are you now, and how is the buildup going? Well, now I'm currently in Nederland, Colorado, um, in an altitude camp, and I think it's going pretty well. So um, hopefully we can get the uh, stars and stripes back on the shoulders and um, rep the rep the flag well for the rest of the year. But uh, we'll see. It's going going really really good so far. Um, tough start to the year, so I'm pretty, really motivated to do well um, into the summer and the rest of the year. So uh, I'm pretty stoked on it. And then uh, we'll see how it goes. I'll have one teammate with me, uh, Megan Jastrab, mm-hmm. young up and comer. So um, I'm also excited to have a teammate with me as well. Nice. So we got, let's timestamp it. We're talking now on June 7th. Um, I want to say nationals are approximately the 21st-ish. Is that about right? Yeah, uh, the 20th. Okay, so that was not one of my 20 questions. Yeah, where are you off to after this block of training in nationals? Is it is it anyone's guess what the rest of the season entails? Or what is that looking yeah, like? Yeah, so... Basically, I race the road race in the morning. We start at nine, should finish around 12, 1230. And then I fly out that evening at seven out of uh, Knoxville. And then I head back to Europe because um, La Course is in six days. Oh, wow. So um, it's pretty full gas, actually. And uh, also coming here to Altitude Camp, I had to pack, like, we're going back to Europe 
for nationals and for this camp. So uh, it was a big trip and we loaded up the sprinter and, um, yeah, so we're about to start like a pretty heated part of the season here. Sure. That's wild. Um, how is the, is Tokyo decided yet? The team? So it'll be announced in three days. That's um, what I thought. Officially. Yeah, I thought it was the 10th. Okay. Mm-hmm. That would be the official announcement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did know or find out four days ago that I actually did make the team. You did? Yeah. Friggin' right. So, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so stoked on that. Uh-huh. And then, uh, yeah, I'm sure we could take that. Take, we could use it once. Uh, sure. Whenever you post this, I'm sure it'll be fine by then. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking my thought was to announce this sometime right before nationals as good nationals mm-hmm. lead up. Uh, shoot. That's outstanding. This is your first Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. First Olympics. Hot so, dang. Yeah. Man, that's mega. Uh, massive, massive congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so I know you're of Filipino descent. Describe, this is a big overarching question. Describe your upbringing, big family, small family, siblings. Tell me about what it's like growing up in the Rivera household. Well, um, there's a lot of screaming. I think I feel like (laughs) that's just how they tend to talk to each other. I'm complete opposite. I'm actually very quiet, normally typically kind of shy, but Uh uh, the volume's normally quite high in a Filipino household. And that's not even being mad. That's just normal talking. Uh Um, I have two older half sisters and one younger sister. And if it counts for anything uh, or depicts a a good picture, uh, I have like 40 cousins and that's only on my dad's side of the family. (laughs) And And we're actually quite tight. And, um, Every year we have this get together in February um, and we play musical chairs and it's very, very competitive. Oh, nice. I can believe that. Okay. Within the cousins. Uh So yeah, the best I've done is second. I've made it to the last round. Hey, that's podium position. I got got cheated out of it. I got, (laughs) I was really pissed about that. So (laughs) is it BYOC? Do you have to bring your own chair? Like collecting 39 chairs is not easy. Yeah, it's a lot of chairs, but um, it's a it's a well organized event. So we we have uh, standardized chairs for 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 uh, the cousins musical chair competition. <laughs> you hope so. Yeah, you need you, you got to have some sort of neutralization, so you can't have like a, yeah. a oh, house rules and like, somebody knows the really comfy chair. Yeah, rules yeah. are important. Yeah, um, and, and then, then I think uh, another thing, one more thing to uh-huh, outline the uh-huh. the Filipino culture is that you're always eating. Your mom's always asking you if you're hungry or if you want food and your dad is always eating and that's everyone's eating all the time. That's hilarious. (laughs) How does that compare and contrast with a sport like cycling where, I mean, shoot, it's sort of quintessential to cycling in that you always need to be fueling and eating properly at the same time. You always have to be aware of that, that pesky strength to weight ratio. So how does that fit in? I think the difference is that I probably work out more than anyone else in my family. Uh-huh. So <laughs> there's a funny joke that uh, like a lot of Filipinos uh, kind of look like a bowling ball. <laughs> so I think <laughs> I 
I think it's because I work out a lot, so I don't end up looking like that. But I think if I did not, if I was not a professional cyclist, I probably would look like a bowling ball at the you. rate that I eat. I but you. I think it goes, it, it works out really well for me. Uh-huh. Um, especially at altitude, I, I'm like always hungry, always eating. So, um, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm trained on the input part of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, family upbringing that last question didn't count so we're still on question number five how did you get into cycling yeah so my dad uh he was always on two wheels basically um even before my time he used to race motocross um and he was always outdoors and working on jeeps in the philippines and then when he came to the u.s i think he raced motocross for a little bit um and then got hurt and then i think i got into the picture at that point. And then he got into downhill mountain biking and then cased a double, a double and crashed into some rebar and then uh, <laughs> kind of slowly like downgraded himself yeah. uh, to normal mountain biking and then to road cycling. And then that's kind of when I came into the picture with road cycling. Um, I actually played a lot of soccer when I was really young and that was kind of like my first sport that I got into. Uh-huh. Um, and then my dad had a tandem that he put my mom on the back of um and then eventually i was i had long enough legs to go on the back as well yeah um and that's kind of how i got introduced to to road cycling um and then uh and eventually i got big enough to have my own bike probably i was eight or nine um i obviously knew how to or learned how to ride a bike when i was a lot younger um but that was my first road bike with drop bars and everything nice and then um yeah, I got my first race was uh, the Redlands Classic Kids Race. One of my dad's friends that we would ride with on the weekends, he uh, he uh, dared me and he said, hey, if you win this kids race, I'll give you 20 bucks. Yeah. And I was stoked. I was like, all right, <laughs> let's go. Right. Brought the trainer out, had a warm up. I was going all in for this. Uh-huh. It was one lap of the crit course um, before the pro race, I think. And uh, my dad had come back from a trip, uh, in France, uh, doing all the mountains there and he did Alpes and he came back with an aqua Sapona kit for me. Uh So I did this, (laughs) my first race, uh, I'm in this like zebra print kit. Um, and I also wore glasses and I didn't have like prescription sunglasses. So Uh I had like these little spectacles on my face with an aqua Sapona kit. And I have one photo from it. And that's just like, I think one of the funniest photos of, I guess my career or yeah. me on a bike. <laughs> what is the likelihood that we can get access to that picture? Is that easily accessible? Uh, I can definitely. Send okay. It to you. <laughs> I think we got a, a go-to image for this podcast. Uh, yeah. What year was that, that you did the kids race? That had to be 2003, I think. Oh man. Next, I think yeah, I'm dating myself. Next- <laughs> I think I raced that probably as a, cat too but i think that was also my first redlands <laughs> really no way yeah that's hilarious yeah man but i bet you didn't look like a zebra i didn't look like, like a zebra uh we were in a, a similar kit to the colors of liquid gas so we were just bright bleached green right across the <laughs> the start line um yeah quintessential of those italian kits that are bright like yeah, an aqua right. Sapona kit <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah. Speaking of dates, born in 1992, I believe you turned pro at 16. Does that sound about right? Yeah. 
I think that's when I was uh, officially a, a cat one. Okay. At least locally. You have a degree in business and entrepreneurship from Marion University, which is a well-known university and a specifically among cyclists. Um, mm-hmm. What do you suppose you'd be doing if you were not racing a bike? Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I did quite a few um, internships, um, different in cycling, out of cycling. I think um, anything I put my mind to, I think I would really try to do my best. I think that's kind of how I operate. Yeah. Um. I honestly don't really know if I, if I was doing a normal job, I would hope that I'd be crushing it, just clacking away at the keyboard and whatever. Um, <laughs> whatever people do in the real probably, world. <laughs> yeah. Probably in the, in the realm of marketing. Cause I had realized like through my junior g- career, uh, kind of like making personal sponsorships and keeping those relationships, um, in good standing that, um, I kind of had a, had a thing for it. So that's why I studied marketing at Marion. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably in, in that realm, but, um, yeah, I don't, I honestly don't know. I think, uh, I love racing. I love competition. So I don't know if I would, if I would have been in another sport. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think, uh, whatever it would have been, I, I probably would be going like 110% into it. I like know? that. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't like doing things to just be mediocre. I think I like to do things to do well at them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah, I often think of, you know, did we find cycling or did cycling find us? So it's almost this chicken and egg, like what would you be doing if you didn't ride a bike? Well, who knows? Because maybe you'd be in the real world but am. still be riding a bike. Like, right. Know. Yeah, it's just the crazy way life life unfolds. Okay, so speaking of going 110% in all that you do, Sprinters are often a, a different breed. You sort of, you know, on the literal side, you dive into corners, you take risks, you basically don't flinch when other people would flinch. Is that a good way mm-hmm. to describe you, or are you just wickedly fast with a healthy dose of self-preservation? <laughs> um, I do flinch every now and then, but I think in high-stress situations, I'm, I think I'm a pretty calm and cool uh, person. So, yeah, I think I think you got me right there. Nice. Okay. Um, now you've been wildly successful all throughout the ranks. So go back to that first race in Redlands to juniors, to U23, to domestic pro, to European pro. How have each of those graduating steps gone? And where was the biggest leap among those junior U23, domestic pro, European pro? Good question. Um, Biggest leap. Yeah, I think out of juniors, I think um, it's quite a big leap, especially for women. There's like kind of no U23. Yep, yep, yep. So, so basically, um, what ended up happening is like I kind of felt like I had the path just to go straight to European Pro, um, but I had a pretty bad crash at Tour of Qatar in 2011, I think, and really bad concussion. Um, I was like knocked out, woke up in a CT scan. Both my contacts were out of my eyes. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, pretty bad. Yeah. And it took me a, quite a long time to come back from that. Um, and then I think it was at that point when it, where I was like, okay, I, I need a degree. I was like, this could be over very quickly. Um, so that's where I decided to go to Marion. And then it turn, kind of turned out to be my, that was kind of like my U23 uh, step. And then kind of, kind of relearn racing again and relearn 
um, you know, how to take care of myself and, and everything like that. So I think that was probably the biggest step is like, say, if you go from juniors to pro, but it was still quite a learning point from juniors to collegiate. And yeah, for sure wouldn't be where I'm at now if it wasn't for collegiate. And I think it was also a really good step um, where it was like not so much pressure. Um, you're still riding your bike. You're still being competitive. You're also making yourself better in your head and in your legs. Um, so, and just in life in general, there's just a lot of learning, I think, in that time frame of your life. Um, where you are so, as a junior, you're so used to listening to your parents and your coach and you're like listening, listening, listening to all these people around you. And then all of a sudden you get to this age where you're like, oh, wait, I can make all these decisions. Like, wait, I actually don't want to do that. Or I do want to do this. (laughs) So I think just in general, like life terms, I think that time in your life is a pretty big, big jump. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what I would say is the, the biggest jump for sure. Nice. Yeah. I, I never raced as a junior. I got into cycling basically in college and I just absolutely loved the collegiate scene, the mashup of academics, athletics, the fun, the shenanigans, the learning curve. It's just, it's so rad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we have such a different scenario in so many ways here in the States as compared to Europe in terms of academics, athletics, collegiate system and so forth. So I want nothing more than to see the, the collegiate cycling scene thrive, but we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, right there with you. Yeah, hinging on that last question, uh, we're up to question nine. So in a similar vein, talk to me about the last step because I think this is one that's often the most curious among uh, an American cycling audience, going from domestic pro to European pro. Uh, how was that segue for you? And, and maybe you'd already have enough international experience that it wasn't too bad, but... Yeah, how was that domestic to international segue? Yeah, it's definitely a completely different ball game. Um, and yeah, I did also have a bit of taste also when I was junior, like junior worlds, um, did some trips to Europe already. Um, but mainly you just have to be tough and you have to be ruthless and you have to stand your ground and you're the foreigner. So you also have to to learn the culture, kind of learn how it works, but at the same time, like take no shit. You know, like, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a balance for sure. Um, and you can't just fully become a Euro because that's also not who you are. So you have to respect the, respect the culture and respect who you are too. And, and I think the biggest thing is, yeah, definitely taking no shit. I mean, you have to, you cannot be there and be shy or be timid. Um, I think I mean, you can and maybe not get so far. It's harder for you to to do what you want. Um, but yeah, it's definitely tough. And the even the racing itself, you go from like super wide American roads to like bike path and you're racing on a bike path with 120 yeah. other really competitive racers. And, you know, they all want to win. Whereas maybe in the US or top 20 want to win or something. So it, it's like magnified, I don't know, times 10 or something that... Yeah. The roads are narrower. Everybody wants it. Everyone's cutthroat. Everyone will will do, you know, whatever it takes to win. Um, and so, yeah, you just have to take no shit and uh, be there and, and tough it out. Be tough and uh, and you have to want it too. And I think the thing with Europe too is you kind of have to want those things. 
Um, you can't expect that it's just going to be easy and it's going to be great. And look, you made it Uh like, you kind of have to like those hard aspects about it to really thrive in, in that, uh, in that environment. hundred percent nailed it. Yeah. I remember when I first got to Europe, (laughs) I said harder, faster, longer. That's European racing so much so that it was a different sport. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. And then I love the, you know, you're racing on bike paths is that square peg round hole. It's like, you'll never get those 120 people all on the front line together because there's only yeah. so much room and uh, mm-hmm. brutal, crazy. Spoken like a true sprinter. Take no shit from nobody. <laughs> well said. Yeah. yeah. Um, this might be jumping back a tiny bit to the collegiate scene, but ignore that I just said that. What can we do to grow American cycling? You and I are both sort of products of American road racing. So what can we do to, to grow American cycling? I think it would be cool to kind of base it off um, other league sports where there's like, you know, you have like the collegiate or high school and then the collegiate and then the pro um, kind of aspect to, to like say football, for example. Um, I think it would be really interesting. I know like NICA is really growing and also, I mean, collegiate cycling is a very big thing in the U S and it's I think pretty much not, not there in Europe. So I think to rewrite how, um, how to get to, to be, to become a pro in the U S, um, would be really cool. I think if you have, you know, your, your X amount of pro teams and then, then there's the X amount of colleges, um, and then all coming from certain high schools. So I think that would be, a really interesting model to to follow, and then along the way, you you do get your education. There is that middle middle step, that kind of U twenty three step for for everyone, um, and it's not so much pressure where you come from from juniors straight to pros right away, um, as well. And um, yeah, I think that would be a, a really interesting idea to to keep collegiate in the game and also just grow American cycling in general on both both ends of the spectrum from, from juniors and high school all the way up to, to pro. I dig it. I love it. Yeah. It's so fascinating. I mean, like you were talking about the, the contrast to European culture, we're just Americans are not Europeans and vice versa. And they, you know, we Mm -hmm. don't have the junior development ranks that they have. Then we don't have clubs the way they have clubs, but we have NICA, we have, Elementary school leagues popping up now and again. Um, we yeah. just we do things differently, and there is so much potential. And despite domestic road racing being in the toilet right now, I think there is so much cool opportunity. So hopefully, we start to get it right sooner than later. Yeah, but and it's interesting rise. too because I think when I was a junior, I think U.S. racing was like thriving, like. Yeah. High Road and T-Mobile are coming to Redlands and Merced and San Dimas stage race, mm-hmm. and um, and then now to see it, it's like kind of kind of sad because like the Euros would want to come here actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, completely. Um, yeah, I got into my first year as pro, or what I call the tail end of the heyday of American road racing, when you know HealthNet was super strong and Saturn was around, and people were making six figure salaries, and then it's just been on this. Mm-hmm downward trend but it will it'll come back it'll um, be its own thing exactly think, pretty soon here in in u.s yeah what what race or what title is the biggest carrot for you right now what's the race you really want to win 
And maybe that's um, one that you want to keep in your back pocket and you're like, oh, I'll tell you when I win it, but I'm not going to say anything until then. Yeah, probably that. But I'll, I'll give you something to chew on. Uh-huh. I think um, I think Plouet, it's, uh, it's this race in France that's been around for a really long time. Um, it's also quite a staple in the World Tour women's calendar. Um, and it also always falls on my birthday weekend. Um, and I've been really close to that race and I think it's a race that really suits me well. Um, and the first time I did it, I had cramped, so it didn't do well. And then this, the next year I got third. And then the year after that I got second. So, and then last year I didn't race, um, because I had crashed and gotten a, got a concussion. Although I felt like I was in a like good form before my crash that I could have done well. Um, so like I've slowly built up this third and second and like just so close so many times. And also the race, um, ends up in different ways. Um, but I think that's a race that I'm like really chomping at the bit, like so close. Uh, I know how I can win it. Um, just hasn't been like the right, um, yeah, situation for, for me. Nice. That, that's a perfect answer. Um, Plouet is it's such a historic race. Every European pro cyclist knows about it. It's mm-hmm. super hard. It favors a what I'd say a, a sprinter who can climb well, but you could also get a mm-hmm. a climber who sprints well. Um, mm-hmm. Great answer. Super cool race. Hope you nab mm-hmm. many more or many of those <laughs> wins. Um, so long as you're okay doing so, describe your worst crash. I think my crash in Qatar. In 2011, I think that was a really pivotal point in my career, probably life. Um, and uh, yeah, it was the last stage of Tour Qatar and it always finished um, in town. And we kind of did this like curved hot dog loop back and forth um, in the wind. And we were getting ready for the sprint. And all I re- the last thing I remember was um, there was a, a train coming up the left side of me and I was in pretty good position, probably like top 15, top 20. And I just looked really quick and I was like, okay, I'm going to jump on that train. And then that was the last thing I, I remember. And I think what I was told is someone crashed in front of me while I was kind of like glancing over my shoulder and then just T-boned whoever was down in front of me. And then I think I kind of hit my head on the side Um and then, yeah, I don't know anything. I just have these weird small snippets of memories of like being on the ground and seeing blue sky and just the palm tree swing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I think I had a memory. I think that was, my, I think that was my only memory unless I already forgot it. And then I woke up. Yeah. I woke up in a CT scan and both my contacts were out and I have pretty bad eyes or like negative five negative six so i couldn't see anything basically um and then later find out like oddly enough i had shram the double shift Uh like one of the the first years of it and the paddles were gone like the shift paddles were on both sides holy cow and i snapped snapped my frame in half like yeah no clue what happened and apparently in the ambulance my teammate came with me and i would just kept asking the same questions over and over and over again yeah um and then I had like a cut on the back of my head and then like I got my lip really good and also like the side of my eye, but luckily all my teeth were intact. Uh-huh. I think that's, I think that's probably my, my scariest thought, but yeah. all my teeth were good. Yeah. Um, it probably took me close to a, a year probably to, 
to get like really normal. I think my first three months were the hardest, like really sensitive to light. Um, I slept a lot, um, was tired when I was exposed to light. So that was probably my, the, the worst crash and also the worst effects after it as well. And you were, you were in college at that point or you were about to go into college? At what point do you say, yeah, I realized also the importance of, of an education? So I had graduated high school early and then I was going to focus that spring on racing and then kind of see if I wanted to go to college that fall. So I think I was pretty lucky to have that time to decide that and also just to recover from my, from my crash. So, um, that was actually before I had decided to go to, to college. And then that crash really just made me say, okay, I I think I should go to college. Yeah. Well, we all have our different paths and reasons to go to college or not. And that's Mm -hmm. a unique one. I was just on my phone trying to search. You had a near crash, which is kind of hysterical that happened not too long ago, or you're trying to warn a teammate of yours about something about to happen. And then at the same time, (laughs) something, explain that one. And then hopefully people can search for it because it's like a miracle and a a testament to your actual exceptional bike handling skills. Yeah. Yeah, that one's pretty funny. Um, that was Brabant's Appeal okay. in 2020, uh-huh. um, which was actually pretty cool because they added. Well, actually, no, I had, it had been around for a, a while, but it was a new. It was a course more similar to the men's race. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, some key climbs in there that are kind of special to that specific race. But anyways. Um, it was just during the neutral and we're just cruising along. Everything was fine. Uh, my teammates, uh, front brake was kind of rubbing a lot and she was like asking me, Oh, what should I do? You know, should I go back to the car or whatever? And it's like, yeah, it's neutral. Just get on the radio and go back to the car and have them check it out. It's, it's totally fine. Uh So I was just hanging out in the back with her and then she got on the radio to say like, you know, Hey, my front brakes rubbing. Can I come back to the car? And I was just un- watching everything unfold. I saw the pack in the front s- slamming on the brakes because it was kind of narrowing. And I saw her with her head down, like totally had no clue what's going on, really focused on being on the radio. And I reached up to grab her on the hip to kind of like slow her down because, I mean, all- the only thing I saw was just her going straight into the back of everyone. Yeah, yep. um, and as I was doing that, she looks up, she sees it, she hits the brakes, and then I had my hand on my rear brake and I just couldn't slow down enough because uh-huh. someone in front of me hit the brakes like extra hard yeah. for some odd reason. <laughs> it's just like the accordion effect going to the back. Um, and I had crossed wheels. And the only thing I thought was like, I am not going to crash in the neutral right now. Like, yeah. This yeah. this would be embarrassing. <laughs> so I just like immediately, like we were going slow enough where I could unclip both feet and kind of like paddle my way out of it. Uh, and like basically strider bike my way out of it. And at least uh, my seat is actually not so far from the top tube. So it's not so different on the, on the height. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I actually land, I went on my top tube on the side of my leg. So I didn't just, slam on my crotch or anything everyone thought that it was painful but it was actually on my hamstring yeah just so that's clear and i have the chance to clear that up okay very good but uh yeah that was a probably one of my better saves that were caught on camera i'm gonna do everything in my power 
to find that and make sure it's in the show notes because, ladies and gentlemen, this is <laughs> this is nothing short of exceptional bike handling skills, and no one went down. Um, yeah, there's there's the thought, there's this myth that the neutral part of bike racing is safe and fun and a casual rollout. Um, to our uninformed audience, the neutral rollout yeah. is terrifying, and it's yeah, it's where you're dodging more road furniture than you ever wish at speeds that should not be neutral and mm-hmm. yada 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 okay okay keep checking on through these um so yeah on the antithesis of crashing what do you do off the bike to recharge and i don't mean massage and i don't mean space legs like how do you mentally get that well-deserved r&r um, I think being an American racing for a Euro team and also being in Europe a lot, I think just being at home is really nice. And it's quite funny because normally the Euros like go on vacation in the off season or when there's a break or whatever. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. To be honest, like I kind of can't remember the last time, like I had like a real vacation. I think uh, like, you know, I went to Hawaii with a family and in, in like November of 2019. So I guess, you know, that, that kind of counts, but yep. even just being home feels like a vacation. Yeah. Um, so just being around family and seeing friends and family in town, um, love to cook, um, nice. love having nice, uh, nice cutting utensils, like love me to, to make a homemade chimichurri and just chopping all day yeah. <laughs> get get the the parsley and cilantro super fine oh, but awesome. um also yeah love to not to say that i'm an alcoholic or whatever but i love a good <laughs> drink um <laughs> a girl but um my palate has been changing i think uh in college i was i really liked a lot of whiskey and now I don't. And then I used to like IPA, but now I just like a good old fashioned course banquet, like a beer. Wow. Beer. So, um, yeah, it's, it's changing. And also champagne's a big thing for celebrating. I think, um, have a palate for champagne a little bit nice. and also some, some wine. So I don't know. I'm kind of all over the place yeah. with, with stuff. And also, uh, we got a sprinter van, um, in October of last year. So, getting pretty handy with that. I'm also, uh, actually an unlicensed plumber and electrician. So, um, I know everything, <laughs> how to hook that up. We did everything DIY in, in our van. So, uh, yeah, I know my positive and negatives at least. <laughs> I'm impressed. This is, that is a, that is a diversified portfolio in ways to unwind. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of all over the place, but, uh, yeah. I found like this, this year working on the van, like I really loved on rest days or like days where I had more time to just like sit in the van and crank out some work and get something done. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we, yeah, we did everything from like the platform and the electric and the, and the plumbing and the flooring and the overhead storage and everything. So dang, yeah, we're big DIYers and like to fix things and have projects. <laughs> well, if you find yourself with a surplus of time, my van has a surplus of work to be done and I am, <laughs> As much as I know positive and negative, I I, yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do. Um, yeah. So speaking of home, when you when you make the migration to Europe, where where do you call home while you're over there? How does that work out? Um, we have a uh, team apartments in in Sittard, uh, and they were built just for us, um, mm-hmm. pretty new a couple years ago. So it's nice to have a 
excuse me, your own space and everything. And um, it's a nice spot for the classics. So that's kind of um, an important part of the season for me. Um, so it's, uh, you know, a couple hour drives from all the Belgian classics, couple hour flight to the Italian classics. So it's a good spot, uh, during the spring. And then, um, yeah, it's all centralized for the team as well. All the other girls live there too. So when we do camps and training, like we're all right there. And, um, I think it's not maybe as glamorous as, uh, as Girona, but I think for not living there full time for the whole year, I think, uh, it's a good spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're going there for work, right? Go do work. Yeah. Um, you're on yeah, when I'm not racing, I go home. So then yeah. it's like, I don't need a nice place to a super nice place to live in, in Europe since sure. I'm not there really all the time. Yeah. Uh, the team apartments are, sorry, the apartments are team or is that USA cycling? Uh, team. So team DSM, we have like our little neighborhood of, yep. of apartments, uh, next to the Tom Dumoulin bike park. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's in the same city as the national team ones. So, um, it's quite not so, uh, difficult to find, uh, some fellow Americans around. That is also nice as well. I rode for Cervelo test team in 2009 and they were trying to do the exact same thing. Um, and the orders at the top is they were going to move everybody on the entire team from riders to staff, male, female, Swanee's mechanics, all families to this tiny little town in Switzerland. <clears throat> and on paper, that might make sense, but logistically, that makes zero sense. You can't be like, hey, Carlos, Carlos Sastra, you just won the tour last year. Why don't you move your entire family from Spain to Switzerland and tour? Hushav, why don't you come on over? Like, it's yeah. great for the team, the foreigners to come over and have a place to crash. But it, yeah, it didn't pan out the way we expected. So goofy detour tangent aside. So you're on team DSM. This team has a long history and heritage in cycling. How much overlap is there on the men's and women's teams? Are they pretty, are they quite separate or quite intertwined? Um, I think there's a fair bit of intertwinement. I think uh, the, the team meeting which is kind of like where we get together for the upcoming year. Um, it's all, we're all mixed together. Although COVID has kind of made it a little muddy. Now we all kind of stay in our own little bubbles, but uh, historically I think, yeah, I spend a lot of time together at the team meeting. Also the camps um, overlap a little bit. Um, as far as the performance team, we kind of share a lot of infrastructure and knowledge there between the teams. Um, and then also I'd say like, yeah, the the closest mix, um, like for Strada Bianchi, like we would use the men's bus um, so that we wouldn't have to drive both buses down. We'd kind of share one bus and then we would shower when, when we finish and then clear out and then and then the men would finish and then they would have their bus because mm-hmm. uh, normally the women race, race before the men. So um, I'd say like that's pretty cool. And also, um, like at the Volta, um, you know, the women's race and the men's race finish at the same place. So then afterwards we kind of get, get to mingle a little bit, at least, uh, a non COVID years back then. So, um, no, yeah, I think there's a fair bit of, of, of mixing, but, um, at team camp, I think when there is overlapping, we, if we ride together, it's normally on like the easy days. Mm -hmm. So nice. That's cool. That's outstanding. Uh, I mean, it's 
certainly not every team has a has a world tour team, male and female version. So, mm-hmm. and then I think folks yeah. often don't realize the the logistical game of musical chairs that goes on with buses and teams and riders and places and getting everything all over the place. So yeah, if they can say, hey, let's send one bus to Strata Bianca, mm-hmm. that sounds <laughs> considerably easier. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, we are zeroing in on the end. I'm going to wrap with three questions. And I think without a handful of my detours and tangents, we have done mm-hmm. 20 questions. So this has been, this has been pretty go. dialed. Okay, final three. Favorite place to ride a bike? Number one place you would like to ride a bike that you've never been? And with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? These are three questions. Those are three questions. That was not one. So favorite place to ride a bike? Favorite place to ride a bike? Uh, I kind of can't pick one. I think there's, I had kind of like a top three. Uh We'll take three. Um, And they're all cool in their own way. So it's like the top, my favorite places for different things. Uh Uh-huh. But um, Mallorca, I, I love Mallorca. It's, uh, I don't know if it's like the island lifestyle or what have you, or the uh-huh. Spanish food or having mountains and flats. Um, the time that I've spent there has been really cool. I really enjoy my time there. Nice. I uh, love the food there as well and the culture and, and everything. And so um, I'd say that's, that's one of my favorite in my top three. And then the other one is actually uh, Tennessee. So for for spring break, um, when I was at Marion, we'd all hop and jam in some cars and drive down to towns in Tennessee. And uh, there's actually some really, really awesome riding out there Um, on the bike on the or sorry, on the road and off road. There's a lot of great riding out there. Um, And actually, uh, we'll head down to nationals a little bit early to kind of get used to that heat down there because it's yeah. quite humid. Yeah. Um, and also ride some of those, some of those old roads as well. Um, there's a really cool road called the dragon's tail nice. and it's <laughs> something like over a hundred switchbacks in, or like corners. Yeah. And I don't know, like 12 miles or something, something Dang. like that. I forget what the statistic is, but, uh-huh. um, it's just a really awesome place to uh, ride a bike that you would never think of. Um, would be uh in the in the top three and then uh my other favorite is just uh the santa monica mountains in la it's like not really my backyard it's like an hour away from where i grew up but um it's just awesome like there's everything you need there you're by the beach you're in the mountains um you just go up and down all day long different different ways to go different loops and then uh yeah then you're right there next to the city too so just a little bit of everything in one spot nice Perfect answer. Yeah. I love how close to LA you are and you find the right road, right canyon, and you won't see a car for mm-hmm. hours. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Bananas. Okay. Uh, you've obviously ridden your bike in a lot of cool places. What is one place you'd like to go and ride that you've never been? Um, hmm. Shoot. I mean, I don't know. I guess. Uh, there's a lot of obscure places in Europe, I think, that are I've heard are pretty cool, like Croatia or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and Czech. So, um, to be honest, I'm not really sure. I think there's a reason why I don't know about it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, 
but I, I'd also just love being on the bike and exploring. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know off the top of my head, to be honest. Right on. Great answer. Either of those places anywhere. and any other place in between. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of cool places to ride in the world. So yeah, hopefully you get to Croatia Actually, and I, check. I feel like among more off-road riding I've heard is like really cool. Like I'd really love to go to some, like uh, Bentonville sounds really awesome. Yeah. Like to bring the mountain bike. That place um, is a hoot. Yeah. So uh, I, I can get a little rowdy on the mountain bike. I know I'm really a, a roadie at heart, but yeah. I can, I can handle some, I think some pretty technical stuff. So um, maybe like uh Whistler type of riding and stuff as well. Like nice. I think that's something that would be really cool. Uh-huh. Um, so I guess it's not really necessarily road riding that uh, I'm really interested in. Perfect answer. And with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? <laughs> I think my dad. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to uh, ride my bike with my dad again. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, yeah, I'd ride my bike with anyone, honestly. I think everyone has a story. Yeah. Everyone. Uh, you could always learn something from someone. Um, I'm totally open to uh, riding my bike with anyone. Love it. It's a cool way to uh, to get to know someone and to experience things together. Mm-hmm. Very true. Well, we have uh, met over the course of this Zoom call. Um, I would love to go for a bike ride with you. I get out to Santa Monica sure. Mountains every now and again, so hopefully that can happen. Hopefully Vermont is on your places that you'd like to go ride a bike list. We would love to have you in Vermont here sometime. Yeah, I only hear good things, especially oh, on your podcast. It's a, <laughs> it's a fun spot. I'm looking out the window, and I literally only see the color green between the grass and the trees. So it's That's either awesome. green or it's white. We got, we got green season right now, which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's good news. <laughs> well... Corinne, this has been amazing. I really, really appreciate the time. Appreciate the insight. Likewise. Um, I wish you an awesome rest of the day, rest of the time at Altitude, and one kick-ass nationals and rest of 2021. Right on. Thank you very much. Thank you.